Before we introduce today's guest, a quick reminder that we really love hearing from you about how these conversations inform, inspire, or help you make sense of the world around you. So at the end of the show, we'd love you to hit subscribe and give us a quick review and some gold stars on Apple or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this podcast. George McEncrow is a tech entrepreneur, writer, stand-up comedian, educator, and a force of nature. The single mother of four hates orthodoxies, has a roll-up-your-sleeves can-do mantra, and has spent her life giving everything a crack to dial up the carpe diem in her every day so she doesn't die wondering. In this episode, we hear about some of the formative experiences that have shaped the adult George's today, including the trauma of losing her beloved sister to suicide weathering a marriage breakup, mental health challenges, and her commitment to continuous self-reflection and self-improvement so she can build a safe harbour for herself and those in her fold. This is a pretty powerful conversation in which George reflects on the realisation that she is more capable than she ever realised she was, and also that being overly trusting of others hasn't always served her well as an entrepreneur. But she also shares the way she's found to calm her mind by journaling her fears and resentments, meditating, minimising alcohol and uncoupling herself from her work. There's a lot in this conversation, including quite a few F-bombs. Sorry about that, we're potty mouths. But the truth is, it's a story from the heart. It's raw, it's real and it's strong. And I started this conversation by asking George some rapid-fire questions just to warm us all up. And we began with, who is she in the world of biscuits? Oh, I'm a Tim Tam, really. You know, I've got a bit of crunch. I've got a pretty gooey centre. Um, I'm, I'm better if I'm left in the fridge for a while. I've had a few hot flushes lately. And, uh, yeah, go very, very well with a cup of tea. <laughs> uh, I, I love that. All right, if you were a colour, what would you be and why? Uh, if I was a colour, I'd be green, I think, because I just love the landscape, the everything that grows, that is fertility, that is, you know, a place for other little critters to take safe harbour, that's probably my colour, yeah. What do you generally try to avoid in your life? Uh, Fuckwits. Um, (laughs) You know, I think that's probably, (laughs) I think, I think what I hate most in the world is orthodoxies in the world, rigidity of thought, rigidity of personal interaction. I'm very suspicious of anyone who thinks they have all the answers on anything. And I I think that really stemmed from being a young mum with lots of children. Whenever I came across somebody who had a lot of rules about this is how you feed, this is how you birth, this is how you... um, I started to realise how dangerous those people can be. Mm, okay. We'll, we'll get into that later because I think there's plenty of goodness in there. All right. What piece of music or song means a lot to you? Oh, there's so many songs that I really... Roll Up Your Sleeves is probably my favourite song of just, you know, no one's coming. You've got this. You've got to just roll up your sleeves and get on with it. I love that. And I also love Queen's having a good time. Like that's just an instant mood lifter. Um, Don't stop me now. You know, it's just that will always get me up and moving and feeling happy. But roll up your sleeves I think is really, you know, look at the face, looking right back at you and get on with it. And get cracking. All right. And final rapid fire question is complete this sentence without thinking about it too much. Yeah. 
in order to really understand me, you have to know that. I was the middle of five children. (laughs) Yeah, I think that probably it. That was my job. I'm a balancer. I was the peacemaker, the person who was the interpreter for my parents on many occasions and, yeah, probably a little bit uh, comfortable on the stage for some people's liking. Okay. So, George, that says so much about you when you talk about being a balance and interpreter between your parents or between your parents and their children, did you mean? Uh, Between my parents and my children and often between them as well. Yeah, Between I was them. the peacemaker, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and how have you brought the peacemaker that you were as a young person into your adult life? You know, I always like to find solutions. I find it very tedious to sort of go back over old ground. I think there's a lot of love and compassion and imagination. Well, there are a couple of things. One is that people can't learn anything if they're feeling intimidated or ashamed or scared so when people feel peaceful when people have an opportunity to be heard and are then prepared to move on then we get great solutions you know and that's that's what I I'm interested in I find funny and it's where the good juice flows um but, yeah, I think if people get very rigid and very stuck, it becomes very hard for anything good to grow there. And who's been rigid and stuck in, in your life? Because this is a loud story for you, it sounds like. Yeah, I think, well, I think just growing up in a Catholic church with a lot of rules, that was a big, you know, this idea of there's a right way and a wrong way to go about how to live one's life. And I think, you know, issues about race or gender, prescribed roles, prescriptive roles, they lead to fairly damaging outcomes for people. You know, obviously I've worked in the disability sector before as my first job. Then I worked in education. I was always sort of trying to find the common ground and avoid people who were very unwilling to see people as individuals but you know rather take them at a superficial level and find a simple solution to a complex problem we uh actually grew up on the same street as it happens uh in melbourne and we chatted about this before we started recording um and when i think back to that street i mean i'm one of six i'm the middle you know that middle child uh wedged in between a whole lot of chaos uh we had a number of families catholic families on that street um who were caught in the community and the rigidity of that life in some ways of, of Catholicism. I'm a, t- I'm a terrible pagan now. Um, but thinking back to those early days on that street, what are some of the things that, that come to mind about your early life and how that in some ways has shaped who you are now? I love the open neighbourhood. I love that we could run and play and do all those things. But I remember being quite intimidated by the church. I think I have not raised my children in any godly fashion whatsoever, but walking into Mass on a Sunday and seeing essentially a torture scene in front of you as a little child um, of a man nailed to a cross and then doing the Stations of the Cross and all that violence and all that, we became immune to it, totally immune to it. Oh, it's a horror story. It's a horror show. It's persecution and guilt and and relentless violence, yeah. It's an absolute R rating and there should have been trigger warnings all over it. And that you become immune to it 
says something really terrible. But I remember one old Catholic Irish priest there who refused to let mum have communion when she talked about having contraception. Having had five kids in five years, she kind of needed a break. And this old priest going on, you know, refusing to give her communion if she were to go on the pill and things like that. So that was a very big deal for mum, you know, uh, to feel, made to feel ashamed. And But then again, I don't know, all those kids, maybe it was a good thing um, for people to be having so many kids, but it it did a lot of damage to our mothers, I think, to be so burdened and there was no conversation ever about what men could do differently to help women manage all those kids, really. It was you just keep having kids until you die. Um, That was really, or you stop shagging your husband, which isn't good for a marriage. So tell us about how those insights have influenced you as a mother and the choices you made when you got married. Um, Well, yeah, the marriage, uh, it was like I wanted to have a big family, I guess, because I I ended up having one. I often like to say, you know, I kept having kids till I found one I liked. But I <laughs> did have four kids under five and it was crazy making. And I I had a husband who worked all the time um, and so I felt very much like whatever happened to the kids, whether he was there or not there, it was always going to be my fault. There wasn't a shared sense of you know, we're both responsible for the outcomes. Your mothers get held, I think, to a particular degree of blame or judgment or if you make a mistake, you know, you start your kid in prep when they're five and not six, you know, like, will that turn them into a serial killer down the, you know, I had a January baby. I didn't realise that this was a curse until (laughs) it came to starting school. But the decision, I guess, about how we, what we did, I always felt like if something went wrong, no one would ever look to the husband to say, oh, how did he fail the family because he was working 16 hours a day. It was always going to be on the mum, you know. No one asked, you know, Premier Peritet how he's going to manage working with six kids. Um, So I guess I always thought, you know, you have these kids and then you hope for the best and you try not to fuck it up too badly. But it's a monumental task and it's largely in our current settings unsupported. You don't have the nonna and the aunts and all that around you. Um, but then I did find a street in uh, Northcote where I had neighbours that were absolutely my support system and wonderful. So that probably is a bit of a throwback to when I grew up, you know, mum had the house open all the time to neighbours and families and that was a really lovely thing. I really love that. Yeah, I'm, I'm reflecting on some patterns that I'm hearing, George, from you around not wanting this rigidity and yet feeling a sense of pressure to be accountable for everything. Yes. Um, talk us through those dynamics with regards to your career and the many ways you've reinvented yourself, yourself over the decades. Yeah, I've always wanted to go and make things better for other people. I think there's been a big helping instinct um, in there. Like I've always wanted to be of service. I think that's a real Catholic thing. Um, Very aware of my good fortunes that 
you know, I had, I was white, middle class, you know, I was literate, numerate and two good arms and two good legs, as mum used to say whenever we complained about anything. Um, so you had to go and kind of put your life in service to other people. That is what I felt was meaningful. I, I couldn't ever see a value in a life where you just turned $1 into two. You know, that it, there had to be something more substantial than that um, and to try and make things fairer. I think that's always been a part, you know, to create a more equitable society. It's interesting listening to you because um, your acts of service have taken you into all sorts of really interesting pathways in your career uh, from, you know, comedian to journalist, educator, disability worker, the, the list goes on, uh, entrepreneur. How, what's driving you? Like where does all this enormous intrinsic motivation come from to propel you into this relentless cycle of achievement? Uh, well, I think I just, like, why not? And what else would I be doing? You know, what else, what is the best use of my time? So I'm a bit of an efficiency freak, like, you know, stand-up comedy was sort of out of laziness about I got a job writing. I was like, God, I've got to think of something new every week. If I do stand-up, um, I can just repeat the same jokes over and over again. So there was definitely an efficiency element to that. But also I wanted to be able to, because I'm a fairly serious person at heart and I think that that's sort of unsustainable, that level of concern and anxiety and um, seriousness. So making jokes I found I could do and that really helped. But, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know what the end game is, I guess, to sort of be buried with a headstone that said, well, she had a crack, you know. Um, <laughs> I'm very aware that your life is short and you only go around once, so make it count, you know. Carpe diem. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and time spent working in a job where you're not un- where you're not happy or you're not making anyone's life better, well, what's the point? Why would you bother turning up? Uh, you, you've really carved your own path. It's very, as a polymath, like you, you really have just choose your own adventure as you've gone out and, and build skills, which is which is amazing. I mean, ha- how have you known yourself where to go next? It's quite audacious, I think, some of the things you've set out to do and, and quite amazing what you've achieved. H- how have you backed yourself or who's supported you along the way? I've had s- some really good friends around me, but most of the people, you know, when I started Sheba were like, you are a little bit crazy to be doing this. But um, I just sort of thought, well, why why not why did you start it like what was the sort of that genesis that moment of light bulb or I thought it was a really good idea I thought I could really help people it had a nice circularity to it that you know I could enable women to work I could enable parents of children who have a disability and stuff to get safe transport I was very aware of there was a fairly predatory landscape um in a lot of the transport sector and I knew it was a bit like bees to um, honey some of these some of these creepier elements and I thought this would be a great you know if I can swing it this will be a game changer for for women who are drivers and also for women who are seeking safe transport but especially the key component and that you know no one had really been there to help me when I had little kids and there was no option. And I thought, to the time I've spent 
in a fucking car or hoping that someone had the right car seats or um, would my children be safe? Imagine if I could put into the world something that would have been so handy to me, for me, that would be a great thing to have done. So, Well, it, it's sort of rebuilding the village that you lost or that we all lost when the world changed and we no longer had the communities and the carpooling that was so much a part of our, our, our you know, in the 70s and 80s. So in some ways it's interesting to, to link what you were trying to solve for in Sheba with the story of your early life and, and what community did for each other then because we don't lean over fences and share stories and, and recipes and whatever. It's, it's really not there and inherent in our social fabric anymore. So, um, and I think... You know, some of the best entrepreneurs who I'm fortunate, you know, get, and as you do get to interface with a lot of incredible founders who who have um, are really going out to tackle very complex problems. And, and that's what you were doing. Like, that's incredible that you lent into that that space to try and um, create a solution for a really big problem that is felt by women. And a lot of the times women's problems go unseen or unheard and unfunded, as you know. Absolutely. And, you know, when you're solving for you know, safety for women and children. It's, I would just watch my mother and other women trying to juggle it all, like trying to do all of the things. And it's invisible. Not so many guys when I was talking to investors and so on, they'd never thought, well, school finishes at 3.30 and work finishes at five o'clock. So what the fuck do we do with kids (laughs) for an hour after work? Like these are things that women were doing for each other, I really wanted to monetize that labor, that logistical labor, that emotional labor, that anxiety and thinking if we could do this ourselves, that would be amazing because yeah. Yeah, your mum would have often asked my mum to pick up the kids from the school, right? So we'd all Oh, God, yeah, because she would have been like, oh, whoops, I'm in labor. There's another one coming. Could you just whiz up and get the kids? I know, that's right. I think um, also, you know, I'm also a mum of four and so I get the the labor that that unpaid, unseen, you know, overworked, uh, it, you know, there's choice in having those children as well. So I don't mean to say poor me. Of course there was choice at every step. And there's a privilege as well in saying I'll bring this number of humans into the world if I can and if I can afford to give them at least, you know, a lifestyle that makes them healthy enough. So caveat there. But to what extent as a, as a mother of four do you um, subscribe to this idea that Annabelle Crabb had of the biological disruptor where we know women subjugate their career aspiration and their time in workforce and we have a compound effect down the line? Um, to what extent when you look at your own journey when you've almost made up for lost time in your career by just going nuts, you know, beyond your early years, was that a factor for you that that you had laboured so hard in those early years with four kids under five? Yes, it was. It absolutely was. And anyone who gets divorced realises that none of that ever gets taken into account when the time comes to separate the assets. So you'll get a, you know, 60-40 split of four-fifths of five-eighths of fuck all and then you start again and you're 48 and you're thinking, well, what, I can keep working four part-time jobs, no bank will give me a loan because my income was sporadic and, you know, looking back, I had been the secondary earner for all of that time. That's the way we have our laws set in Australia and we just have to have to deal and I could try and take that on at a legislative level but, you know, I can leave people like Jess Hill and others to do that who are examining the equity or lack thereof of of how we proceed with um, 
you know, who pays for the caring of the children? Everyone wants it done, but no one wants to pay the price. No government, no no private sector. Everyone wants kids, but no one wants to fund them their care. And in that vacuum, there's a whole lot of um, assumptions made about women who do pay for someone else to care for their children. But you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. And I think that non-choice really is what pivoted me into saying, well, if I can bring Sheba in, women really will have a choice. They actually can keep and maintain a full-time job knowing their children are going to be driven home by the same person every day for a fee that they can afford. That's why we I made big decisions early on with the business to to not let rates, um, uh, what do they call, surge and things like that. So it would be a predictable, foreseeable expense that women could take into account if they wanted to have a job that finished at 5 o'clock, which is pretty much every job, you know, unless you're a teacher or working other shift work. Wow. Uh, It's also very clear, George, how much these values that are so deeply held within you are influencing all these decisions that you make, maybe not consciously at the time, but I can hear real threads coming through. And I want to revisit um, the comedy piece. When I first met you, it was when we both worked on The Circle, the daytime TV show on um, Channel (laughs) 10, and you were doing some co-hosting and I was doing some psych segments. And you were in, you know, full flight in the media at that point. You ended up doing a lot of morning radio, um, hosting and lots of comedy. And yeah. it's interesting to hear you talk about yourself as a serious person with high levels of anxiety and angst and choosing comedy as an outlet to counterbalance. What are your insights there around people who choose comedy and humour? Oh, I think it's such a great manic defence. You know, you can't polish the turd, but you can roll it in glitter kind of thing. So, you know, um, it works. It It is a balm and it's a gift. You know, you're, you're taking something that you assume happens to everyone, otherwise it probably won't resonate with anyone. So you've got to take really common human experiences and essentially show them in a way to reflect back to people something that actually makes them feel better, makes them feel more connected, not less connected. We're all grubby, grey, icky bits, crunchy bits, and but we can find a great deal of humour in it. So I think there was a, a soothing element. But also, like I'd gone and seen a lot of comedy, I thought, I've just, I feel like I could do this. And I, if I don't have a crack at it, I don't want to die wondering, you know? So... I hate it when I'm gutless. I think that's the thing I hate that I find very hard to forgive in myself. If I've acted in any way that was um, gutless, that I really go to town on myself. What's gut- gutless by your definition? Um, I think just thinking, oh, you know, I could have had a crack, but I didn't want to be embarrassed or, you know, I didn't want to make a fool of myself. Or I didn't want to, you know, when those things hold me back, I get cross with myself because it's a bit of that who you think you are kind of thing, like just get on with it, do it. Yeah, fear. It sounds like fear. You don't want fear to stop you. Isn't stand-up comedy supposed to be one of the most terrifying things anyone can do, like that you can do to yourself? Like were you shitting yourself before you went up on stage? Yeah. Literally and had a vomit (laughs) and, and I had diarrhea for four days before I did my first gig and then continued to sort of, 
you do that every time for a long time. And then when I stopped feeling like that, it kind of lost its edge a bit. So like the diarrhea free gig was the point at which you go, no, I'm done. I've conquered that. Yeah. I'm, I'm sort of, if I'm not on stage and present and really, you know, every cell of your being is alive and you're totally, you're totally exposed. You're totally, it's just you win, lose or draw. You own the outcome. You can never blame the audience. It's always your responsibility to make it a good night. And if you check out, that changes that intimate conversation you're having. Um, and I've done gigs where I have, and I know, like, man, no, you you fucked it. You you wimped out, or you pulled a punch because you felt like you were gonna not quite nail it. But it's the learning, it's the constant learning and engagement to have a conversation about what it is to be a human being, you know? That's the art of it. So what next for you, George? It sounds like comedy. Well, comedy's taken such a hit as have live events through this yeah. uh, Corona Coaster. Um, look, it's such a good question. I don't – I love Corona Coaster. That's such a brilliant term. Um, yeah, I honestly – I don't know. Like I'm really keen to maybe write something down about Sheba and that whole experience of what it is when you decide you're going to start building apps at 48 and you've barely managed to send an email as an attachment um, <laughs> technically. <laughs> so it's me. <laughs> uh, I was so bad at, look, I'm a bit better and I started to get really highly skilled, like I was, you know, mastering MailChimp and all sorts of terminology like geofencing things and and then as I hired more people, I sort of de-skilled a bit because it wasn't my problem anymore. It's not my comfort zone, that's for sure. But, yeah, I don't know, I guess I'd like to help other people start businesses, do some sort of mentoring or policy writing around women and safety and access and how that leads to democracy, better solutions. Um, you know, I, I have a real fear of cities being designed around you know, the masculine as the norm and mm. not just the masculine but the sort of 28-year-old masculine. So, for example, driverless cars um, I don't think are a good solution for anyone who has epilepsy, asthma, you know, a broken arm, anyone who has any sort of dementia, certainly not suitable for children under three. I, I hate the idea of the cities of the future being designed by 28-year-old boys in hoodies in Silicon Valley, like that just white boys at that. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's a real lack of uh, diversity in the ecosystem, you know, in, in startups and um, and also we see a lot of that bias then being baked into the business models, which is um, which is then building a world that only is fit for one segment of society. And listening to you and, and uh, you know, our worlds intersect very much in, the, in those areas, um, you know, I've got a very strong personal agenda to enable more females to step into leadership roles or startups or create the future through building business. Now, there are lots of ways that everybody plays into trying to grow that pie, but I think we see so much imbalance and we don't see enough corrective mechanisms actually to try and um, address that bias. What's your relationship with diversity and inclusion? 
Like, do you have a personal agenda for that? I do. And I think, you know, some of the simple mistakes that governments had, you know, I was so excited when things like the Boosting Female Founders Grant came out, for example, and I couldn't even get a ticket in Melbourne, so I had to fly to Launceston to get in to meet with these people. And then when I found out that the government, you know, what, what so many women need is a lead investor and what I thought the fund would do, would they would act as the lead investor and other people would say, great, this woman's got, whatever it is, $80,000 from the federal government will now match that funding and that they would have a period of time in which to have that funding matched. If they didn't, the grant would go back into the pool. But the way that it came in, as you would know, um, Sabina probably knows this too, that you had to go and find the investor, then hope that the government would match it. Well, it made the whole fund redundant as far as I was concerned. It was such a it was such a dumbass thing to do. Yeah. And key stat, globally, women, female founders receive less than 3% of the billions of dollars of capital that pump around the world. So less than 3%, that's despite all of these initiatives, there is still a terrible bias in the fact that the world of funding startups is being built by bros, for bros, the number of male-founded teams, and this is there, it's all in the data. You don't even have to have a gender agenda to see the very complex things that sit inside that. And so what gets funded are solutions that are back to the 28-year-old in the hoodie. Um, so there's a really big issue there. We need more female funders to be able to then back and bank the businesses that women are creating and then we'll start to bring up the ecosystem. Yes, and what I've noticed with pitching to some very financially lucrative women who are investors <clears throat> is they have the same terror that I used to have when I was the only female comic on the bill. It's like if I go up and my gig, my set is shit, people don't say, oh, George was having a bad night. They say women aren't funny. Yes. So I think a lot of the pressure when people said to me, oh, but why haven't you approached so-and-so, you know, she's loaded, she runs. I think, well, this is too high risk for her. So we find a lot of women who are in the position to perhaps fund something like a Sheba or, you know, other things. They're, they're risk averse because they're the only woman in the room who's got that fund. And if she makes a poor choice, people won't say, oh, you know, Susie Jones had a, made a bad call or whatever, something happened. They'll say women can't invest. Exactly. And they are subject to the same harsh, um, inequitable judgments um, that, yeah, that you are. So, yeah, anyway, it's a, we could go down a rabbit hole here. This, it's a big. The funding for women is initiatives. Like I know female founders get less than 3%. When you're, when that founder is solving for a problem felt only by women, it drops down to about 1%. So, you know, if I was a female founder of a, I don't know, an app that was like Air Wallet or, you know, something else, Afterpay, I'd probably do a lot better. But when you're solving for just women and children and you're pitching to a bunch of men who, I don't know, sometimes I'd even think they quite like the status quo and I know that if they didn't, they'd have the means to change it. So um, it's not necessarily in their interest to have uh, women feeling empowered and travelling around the world on an equal footing. I just wanted my daughter to be able to study, learn, swim, whatever, in the same way her brothers did, which is in an absolutely shoulders back, chin up, fearless way. What's your greatest learning from Sheba? Uh, is that um, it's very hard to have a plan that is immovable. Um, I think, like, there are several, right? So personally, 
I've learned that I'm capable of a lot more than I thought. I've also learned that I've got a lot of weak spots that I need to work on. So, you know, trusting some people who I shouldn't have, giving people more information than they're entitled to. I often think I don't think we can have a podcast without referencing Brene Brown, but, you know, when she talks about the people who are entitled to hear your shame story, I think there were some people who I brought into that circle who hadn't really earned a place there. And, but you know, you learn, you fall down, you graze your knees, you cry in your bed for an hour, and then you have to buckle up because the kids need fucking dinner and no one's coming to cook it. So <laughs> on your chop. I've also learned how to calm my mind um, and how to get that distance between I am not my job. I am not my work. I am separate and distinct. Um, so that's been that's been a big learning as well. How do you calm your your mind? Uh, I do a lot of meditation, and that's been enormously helpful. I write down every morning a little list of my fears and um, anxieties for the day, and it sort of takes it off the plate. Then I'm mentally, I know it doesn't work for everybody to write things down, but it really does help me um, to do that as a daily practice of just, yeah, this is what I'm scared about and this is what I'm resentful. So fears and resentments. So that's sort of the opposite of gratitudes and platitudes, isn't it? Oh, yeah, except gratitudes and platitudes. I can't do them. (laughs) And yet the the research is really clear. I call it worry time. You're calling it worry and resentment time. But worry time is a very rigorously studied, effective um, strategy Mm -hmm. to help manage anxiety. And the idea is that if you allocate a set time to worry, obviously not before bedtime, but at some point you say, I'm going to spend 20 minutes on this. Then you compartmentalise it, package it up, put it in the corner, and it doesn't bleed through the rest of your day. And the rest of your relationship, Sabina, because the stuff that I think when I was coming into conflict with my kids, like I raised four teenagers who'd had a very distant, we'd had to move house five times, you know, renting since we got divorced. They've gone through some shit in that time and if I'm not checking in with myself to say, well, what's really the bug up your ass, you know? Yes, okay, your son's left all the mandarin peel and a can of Coke next to the bath and shaved their pubes over the sink, right? That's irritating. But (laughs) I I can either approach that with love, kindness and a sense of humour or and a dustbuster. I'm going to say a dustbuster would be good yeah. at that point at the sink. Yeah, that's that's cubes. right. Standing over his shoulder as he uses it, or I can sort of freak out and make it a really unpleasant exchange. And you know, parking my hostility where it needs to be parked, I think is is just what the process is about. Simply put, like this is actually what's shitting me. It's not. I mean, it doesn't help to have pubes on your soap, but, you know, who hasn't had it, right? So, Oh, we, that's daily. That's life. Um, and, and it's pulling yourself back into the moment to say what actually matters. What am I going to fight? What am I fighting against and what for in this moment? What do you hope to teach your kids um, and what do you, you think that they need to learn about the world they're living in and inheriting? I think my generation, of my kids' generation is a very earnest generation. I sort of wish they'd lighten up a little bit. Um, How old are they now, George, your tribe? Uh, so Bridget 
is just turned 24. So she's my oldest. She's doing her master's in public policy. Joe is 22. He's doing law at ANU. So he's left the state, which was probably, you know, as a result of my shit parenting. Um, Patrick is studying music. He's uh, he's 20. And Toby's studying architecture at RMIT. He's 18. We've been doing this a long time. I think what I really want them to be is self-aware and as kind to themselves as they are to other people. They're very kind little people but I want them to have a very be very aware of their inner monologue and yeah check it check it before you wreck it you know and be accountable for when you make mistakes but embrace your humanity in all its magnificence Um, Mm. the creative elements the grubby elements the envious the shameful all the bits we don't we don't want to own own them, embrace them, and, um, yeah, keep them close. Mm. How do you go doing that for yourself? I've become better. I have had issues with mental health, anxiety, definitely, and in January of this year, I think, I got very unwell, you know, very depressed, very stressed, and I had to, you know, change my antidepressant, take more medication to relax and sleep and I think being a bit vulnerable about all of that you know these are you okay days and everyone's expected to say yeah I'm fine we're not we're all bloody crazy and I think embracing the craziness that you have to say all right these are where I need more boundaries being responsible for your mental health so I had to cut out Drinking all together, pretty, well, pretty much like probably once a month I'll go and have a drink. Doing the exercise even when you don't want to and being accountable for how you present to the world and what you're telling yourself. And you, strangely, you just have to say I'm now telling myself a story that has no bearing in reality. But mm. that's what that little fears and resentment list does. It really helps me nail, uh, this is a thought you've been having a lot. You know, this is appearing every day. Like, we've got to tackle this one. So, and being aware of how that internal narrative, explicitly or implicitly, is actually shaping and dictating you without you knowing it's driving what you're doing. And I, what's that? One of the Stoics said, the stories we tell ourselves make us who we are. And so, if, if you can, you know, remember that the story is, is so powerful in the way that you step into the world and show up in the world, then that, that's a big thing. Can I? If you don't mind, I, I wanted to understand a little bit where we think about stories and what shaped you. Um, I was really great friends with your sister, Catherine, when we were growing up, your beautiful sister, and um, you lost her um, some years ago now. Yeah, the year 2000, yeah. Right. So she died of a heroin overdose uh, alone in her flat, which was terrible, and it sort of, uh, I think, wrecked our family for a very long time. I think it's had major implications for every single one of us. Um, she'd had some serious mental health concerns growing up through her life, but she was very, very bright, very, very funny. I think if she was living now, you know, there was no headspace. There was no, um, she just didn't get access to the kind of help that she needed. It, yeah, it was awful. How, how do you keep her not just memory, but her brightness. How do you keep her alive in in you, in your life? Well, 
I still sometimes forget that she's dead, so that's pretty bizarre. Like if I hear a really good song, I still go to think, oh, my God, Catherine, oh, no, she, she's gone. You know, it's sometimes it's like forgetting that the, there's no power. You know, you think, oh, it's all right, the power's gone out, I'll just watch it, I oh, know I can't. That's all right, I'll just boil the, oh, no, I can't. You know, so I've returned to her all the time. We just celebrated her 50th birthday what would have been with her very dear friends um, who are just, it's sort of lovely to know that she had these other friends in her life and they adored her as much as you can adore anyone. And, yeah, visit her grave sometimes. But, yeah, it's very sad and it's, I talk about it with my kids as much as I can. But, yeah, it's it's a tough one. It's really tough. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Trauma just gets to you. Yeah, yeah. yeah but every, everyone's got some, whether it's big T or little T, it's in all our lives. Yeah. That's probably um, a good segue, George. Thank you for sharing. That was very candid. And, you know, there'll be people listening who have their own grief stories, and I know that will be a support and a tonic hearing your story. We do like to end uh, human cogs with the same question, and that is amongst the complexities and the clusterfuck that I think you've done so well um, <laughs> referring to today that life throws at us. Who do you think is doing the human really well? Oh gosh, there are so there are so many people. Um, well, you guys, obviously, I think there are, there are some leaders amongst us who I think are doing. I think Grace Tame at the moment, Brittany Higgins, Catherine Murphy from The Guardian, I just love her. But I think this unapologetic young women who are naming the things that have happened to them in such a beautiful, beautiful way. Nicole Lee, who is such a great activist on family violence but also ableism I was on a conference with her recently where we talked about what we measure is what we value and so many experiences of women and and particularly women who are differently abled or disabled, it's just not measured. No one's, when you go to find the data from various government departments, it's not there. So I'm just really interested in people, the ones who are highly reactive and and also the ones who are highly forensic and working behind the scenes in that sense. Can't think of any male leaders that are particularly blowing my mind, but I'm sort of not looking. I'm not interested. You do you, boo. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, really. And I like that what we measure is what we value. Um, how can we measure the worth of someone's life or someone's story or how do we measure the worth of someone who threw everything they could at an opportunity to solve a problem and in itself that's enough? That's enough. We don't need to pull a hard metric on on everything we do. So, um, and certainly, it'd be an amazing metric if we pulled it on your life and everything you've done. So, wishing you peace and joy and moments of calm. And thank you so much for chatting to us today. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure and an honour. And I, I do often think about my grandfather saying to me, "Some people know the cost of everything and the value of nothing," and that's something I reflect on a lot yeah living what we value and, and you guys are doing it beautifully so thank you so much for letting me play with you yeah thanks george play is important and i'm never going to look at a tim term in the same way again <laughs> thanks so much for joining us for this episode of human cogs 
We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us, and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com.